Hi, this is Daniel Burkholder, a dance artist based in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and the host for the Actor Act podcast. This podcast will be, of course, the last podcast of 2019, and it has been kind of a, a long time coming. I recorded it back in June and have been so busy I haven't been able to get it together to get it out to you. In this podcast, um, I kind of shift roles a little bit. Instead of me interviewing someone, um, I'm being interviewed. Cass Tunick, who I interviewed earlier in the season, came back and asked me some questions, and we had some discussions around improvisation and my practice. It was a lot of fun, and I hope you enjoy it. I think Cass and I both hope that we have more opportunities to to discuss improvisation and performance, and maybe next season I'll, I'll be able to get her back and continue this conversation. But until then, I hope you enjoy the conversation we had, and thanks for listening. Hi, Daniel. Hi. <laughs> I'm so excited to be talking to you in a more in-depth way about continuing our conversation about improvisation and really hearing from you where your entry and doors in have been and where you see yourself going with your improvisation practice. Yeah, well, thank you so much for doing this. This is kind of interesting to have the tables turned on me here. <laughs> Indeed, for me too. <laughs> um, so let's start off kind of um, broad. I just w would love to get a little bit of history about what aspect of your art practice really invited you into improvisation. Like where did your, where did your fascination um, springboard from? Yeah, I think, you know, when I was, um, it was kind of sprinkled throughout my training, um, like, like college and, and that type of stuff, but it was never a focal point until I was kind of in my 20s and I was working and um, I was co-directing a company with a dancer, choreographer, Sharon Manser, and we mm. were making a lot of work together. And both of us were basically making choreographed work, but we, we started sprinkling in improvisational like little sections or ideas here and there into the work. And for me, over time, I realized that a lot of my interest in making work was on kind of a a, a more global scale or a wider scale. Um, so less about the intricates of, of, of a movement phrase and more kind of structural on how uh, a work kind of flows from beginning to end or how you put the pieces together. And so spending time on that bigger frame became really interesting to me. Mm. And, and with that, I found that when I was working with improvisational scores, mm -hmm. my movement was both felt more kind of authentic and I thought it was more interesting. Mm. I, I was feeling like I was losing some of the freshness and kind of individualness of my movement when I tried to kind of set it within choreographic like structures or, or phrases, phrase material. That's so interesting. Having also just read the, um, the article you've written around freedom and Feldenkrais yeah. and, and movement in particular, and that what holds it and makes it relational is, is of extreme importance. And I, I, I feel that with um, just diving into your artistic world and practice and some of the videos I've just seen. Can you talk a little bit about that in the environment and the relationality um, you know, I think there's the the one thing that I've come to really value, and I don't know if this quite answers your question, but this is what mm -hmm. kind of comes up when when I'm when I hear the question, is this idea of 
both kind of the relationships we make within mm-hmm. the process of making the work and mm-hmm. then the relationship we developed with the audience. But then mm-hmm. also with that is how those relationships are transformative. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that over the arc of making a piece um, or having a series of performances that if, if there isn't some kind of shift in the performers, then, then I'm not sure what we're doing or why uh-huh. we're doing it. <laughs> so uh, the, the evolvingness of the relationship. Yeah, and of, of the relationship of, between each other and the relationship of oneself and hopefully the, the relationship between the performer and the audience. That has been, I think, an ongoing interest, especially over the last couple of years, of what is that relationship between the performer and the audience and, and really not wanting to have that distance that often occurs. Mm-hmm. That we're not some kind of, you know, mystical beings up on stage and, and audiences come in and watch us and leave and not connect to us as people. I'm curious because you've been doing these hiking performances yes. in, in the environment. How has that change transformed you as a performer, as an improviser? That project started a number of years ago when I was still living in Washington, D.C. And it definitely was one of the first times where I tangibly worked on shifting back and forth between kind of this casual relationship with the audience and the more formal relationship with an audience. You know, we're like, you're the, you're the audience, I'm the performer, and we're going to do this mm-hmm. thing. But on those hikes, you know, we were hiking for a lot of time. So you're just like hiking and hanging out and talking with audience <laughs> members. And, and then you'd come around this corner and you'd be like, okay, everyone stand here. And now we're going to do this. Or, or how mm-hmm. are we structured it? We structured it in a number of different ways. But that kind of, that transition back and forth between the casualness and the more formal moments within those works, I think speak a lot to what you were just saying about how to hold these moments of kind of mindfulness, bodyfulness, really being in this kind of state, like this Mm -hmm. shift that happens when you're in performance at times, and kind of that everydayness, just like, hey, here I am. And and I think that has definitely fed into some of my performance work, especially my solo performance work. I have a series of pieces where I talk a lot to the audience and tell stories and move. That has kind of, I think, allowed me to be more present and actually more vulnerable mm-hmm. in some ways. Mm. It's also more multiple in terms of identity yeah. holding to shift between D- different ways of manifesting one's identity or role or um, perception. Yeah, you know, there's this story I tell all the time, so I guess I'll tell it now, um, yeah. <laughs> about my grandfather, my, my mother's dad, who was a bricklayer. Mm. And he was, you know, he laid bricks and built walls and stuff like that. But often if they were like working on a house and there was a fireplace and the fireplace, especially if they were using non-bricks, but like rocks or irregular things, that would be Mm -hmm. his job to like look at this pile of rocks and debris practically and form it into something that was aesthetically pleasing. Mm-hmm. And, and it was, he just like, you know, he'd separate the rocks and figure out which ones would go on the bottom and the top. And he would just build a fireplace. It wasn't like a big deal. It's just kind of what he did. And sometimes I feel like wanting to almost be that mundane with the art practice 
Like, mm. oh, today mm-hmm. we're going to make a dance or today we're going to perform. And it's just like the thing that we do. It's mm-hmm. not, again, it's not this rarefied thing. And I think that kind of desire to be in that state, almost this just practical state, has affected some of the performance that I do. Um, mm. Not all of it. Some of it is still maybe more formal. But, but certainly the more personal work that I do is kind of in that it's like I want I, I'm just aspiring to be my grandfather and just be a bricklayer and just like today we're making art as opposed to building a wall or something uh-huh uh-huh um I'm interested because you're it's, it's a story and you're clearly a storyteller to how is it easier or does it provide sort of entry does speech provide an entry into that dailiness because you said you were you you stop and talk to your audiences and, yeah and tell stories like how is that different or how has that been evolving in your I think you know I think it offers a pedestrian state of being Mm -hmm. Um, because there definitely is a again I use that word casualness I'm not sure that's the best word but you know I go and I, I talk to an audience and I'll ask them a question and there's this one structure that I have where I ask the question about some some place in the world that's one of their favorite places to be whether it's in their home mm-hmm. or their neighborhood or a place they travel to. And I ask them a couple of questions to gather information about that place, what they do there, what the place makes them feel. And then I step back and I use that information to move and to tell my own stories that somehow mm-hmm. relate to their stories. And I think that creates a really direct connection with the audience. Yeah. And, and allows them to kind of see themselves in what I'm doing really directly, and, not kind of metaphorically or anything like that. But you told me a story. I'm going to tell you a story that directly relates to that story, and then I'm going to move it. Or at least that's my goal. That's my, you know, that's kind of what I'm aspiring towards. That's lovely to really take it, as you said, practically and, and casually into a more metaphoric or deeper or other landscape. Yeah. Um, speaking of casual, since we're using the word casual and pedestrian, I'll just slide the word effortlessness in there. Uh-huh. So, um, cause that's seems like part, part of the, part of the formula of how to make something so easeful and effortless that it's, it's an easy invitation. And I was really struck by in your Feldenkrais article, the speaking to that effortlessness as a, uh, and Feldenkrais as a, you said, a practical philosopher. How, how has that, how has Feldenkrais impacted your improvisation and that idea of effortlessness? Well, I think in a couple of ways. One, just kind of on a body level, you know, practicing Feldenkrais regularly, doing the awareness through movement lessons, which are often very detailed and very kind of dealing with very small, intricate kind of ways of organizing oneself. It has allowed uh, more articulation, more certainly more awareness, more sensitivity, more curiosity even in some of these small ways of shifting weight and body organization <laughs> and, and effort. And, you know, in, in Feldenkrais, we think of effort as we want, we're aiming towards movement to be effortless or to feel like it doesn't have effort, which doesn't, it doesn't mean that it's, it's not using strength or power, mm-hmm. but it means that there's not tension in what you're mm-hmm. trying to do or that you're using the least amount of effort necessary to accomplish your task, mm-hmm. right? And right. so kind of bringing that into just my body practice, uh, my movement practice, 
that has certainly allowed me to modulate that feeling. And obviously in performance, sometimes we want to be more effortful. We like, you know, if we're thinking lob on efforts and stuff like that, using right. more strength or, or um, directness or sharpness. I mean, sometimes that's, that's, we want that for, you know, performative effect or, you know, the quality of the movement that we're trying to, to inhabit. But even with that, how can I be really strong? How can I look very effortful, but still do that with the least amount of effort necessary. Right. And yeah. and a psychic effort too. Yeah. So that it's not being willed or forced. But yeah. That that's flow. right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, philosophically I think Feldenkrais has a has a, a lot to offer as well. He he talks about spontaneity mm-hmm. and how trying to develop the kind of the, the spontaneous self. Partly that's that's the idea of having choice in any given situation. Mm. Kind of one of his little pithy little statements, and I'll just kind of paraphrase it, is that, you know, mm-hmm. if you're in a certain situation or mm-hmm. something happens and you only have one way of responding, uh-huh. then you're just compulsive, right? Uh-huh. You know, if you go to, I mean, even something as simple as, um, I don't know, going upstairs. If you always have to, like, go upstairs the exact same way, then that's just a compulsiveness way of doing something that you have. If mm. you only have two ways of doing something, then it's like just being able to say yes and no. So if you uh-huh. say no to one thing, then you have to do the other. Uh-huh. And that's not real choice. Uh-huh. So for anything <laughs> that you do, you have to have at least three choices, three possibilities, three options. And of course, it's better to have five or seven or nine or whatever. And, you know, and like when I'm working with students or when I'm working with, you know, someone one-on-one in Feldenkrais and they have some movement patterns that are inefficient for what they want to do, Mm-hmm. I'm never trying to change what they're doing. I'm just trying to offer more possibilities on how mm-hmm. to do the thing that they want to do. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. then they can choose whether it's a conscious choice or a subconscious choice. But we, we, we're trying to build the, the menu of choices that we have. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, practicing, felt, or practicing improvisation is very much like that as well. It's, that's such an interesting take on it because I've also heard, too, the – at some levels in an improvisation, there's almost like you don't have a cho- you don't want to even have a choice. There's a choicelessness that happens. You're following a track that you're not making. I mean, you're making, as you said, like unconscious decisions, but they're not you're not evaluating at every moment. Oh, do I make this choice? Do I make this choice? Do I go this way or this way? There's a the flow happens. It's, it's almost like you you're following the path and not making a choice about it. That's like one other way I've heard improvisation. Yes, totally. I mean, I totally agree with that as well, but I think that is a, that is a sophisticated performer. Mm -hmm. That is not, (laughs) yes, right. That is a, that is a performer who actually has many, many choices, but they are in a state of, if we want to use like the state of flow, right. Mm -hmm. Or they're in that, that current of the improv. And so, the, the there there seems to be only one choice when in fact because the level of sophistication they're at there's many choices but they can just see the choice that that is within the flow or the current of what's happening. That's a beautiful distinction. Yeah. yeah. What in your in your improvisation practice? What have been the moments where that seems to come to the fore, where there's been a real challenge or a a meeting of that challenge inside of them, the improvisation where the situation where you feel your choice rise to that, a situation that maybe is more challenging in an improvisation. I don't know if like a a specific moment is coming into mind within say like a performative or improv situation. Uh, 
I definitely remember like the struggle of finding this artistic practice, this improvisational practice that I was finding greater sense of groundedness in, greater sense of you know expression in, feeling like it was really mining something within me, and then mm-hmm. not having that that process. Um, supported or appreciated or understood by the larger, say, dance world. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, I remember when I was still living in D.C., the Kennedy Center mm-hmm. um, had a commissioning program for D.C. area-based choreographers. And mm-hmm. it was kind of, you'd apply for it, and then there was a group of people at the Kennedy Center would review applications, and then they, you know, they would uh, award two or three commissions every year. And it was a it was like the biggest kind of award and kind of opportunity for, for most DC choreographers. Uh-huh. And I, I applied like a couple times and I didn't get it, uh, which is fine. You know, that happens. And, but then I remember it was either the second or third time I talked with one of the, the program director um, over there. And I was just like, you know, what's, is there any feedback you can give me on my application and stuff like that? And she just point blankly said like, just the panel didn't think, like, wasn't sure why we would commission an improvisation. Oh, oh my, oh dear. And I just <laughs> looked at her, like, I was like, I, and I said, I said to her, I said, if you were commissioning new music and someone like Miles Davis, could, like, put in an application, would you, would you, would you give him a commission? <laughs> and she was like, well, yeah. I was like, well, that's what he does. You know, it was just like, right. like, whew. And all, everything's improvised at some moment. Right. Like every set thing is improvised. Right. And the, the split in our culture of, I mean, we could call it real-time composition or instant composition. Right. If you call it composition, and that's what an improviser is doing is composing. Right. That's what you're doing is composing. It's just the time it's the, how the time is qualified is different. Yeah, that's right. And even, I mean, in that case, I wasn't even, I wasn't saying it was like a free, open improvisation that was dealing with some very specific ideas and structure and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. And then there was another time I got my up solo I did got selected for like a showcase. And it was called a choreographer showcase. And right before the performance, the director of it came up and, and asked me if my piece was improvised. And I said, yes. And she was really mad at me. Wow. And she said, if I knew that, I wouldn't let you, I wouldn't let you in this concert. And that was like right before the, the concert. So, so like in the moment of improvising, I don't know if I, I mean, I could maybe think of, of some things, but, but those were moments where I felt like, oh, here's this artistic Mm -hmm. practice, which I am finding so much juice in. And the dance world is just so ignorant uh, about what I'm doing and, you know, the value of this practice. Right. Right. You know, uh, it does speak to the the sort of the reputation that improvisation has that right. it doesn't hold the respect that it does in some cultures right. as as the you know the creational art form that it is. Yeah. And you've spoken a little bit about the pull of blurring pedestrian with this other you know transformational zone that improvisation has for you what other aspects are particularly fascinating about improvisation for you right now what are you investigating um on a deeper level as well i've been kind of working on a a longer solo piece and (laughs) it's still far from anything that i would put out in the world but it's it's really that 
that kind of digging into one's how one's like personal history is is present in the present moment. Mm. And I'm just really curious about that. You know, when I was younger, like you know, high school, um, I'd been dancing since I was like nine years old. Um, but then in high school um, was when like the first big kind of rush of breakdancing came into popular culture, you know, early, mid, mid eighties. And, yeah. and I did, I, I was a breaker for a number of years and I performed and I'd go to clubs and I taught a little bit and it was definitely part of my kind of dancing identity in high school, but then I kind of left it, but it's, it still resides in me in these kind of very subtle ways that mm. that no one would look necessarily and think like, oh, he's breaking. It's just there's a sequentialness that I have in the articulation of my torso that mm-hmm. I think comes directly from that practice. There's some more like, you know, more athletic kind of floor stuff that may, may some people may see more as from breaking, but but it's not, I'm not doing like what would be kind of considered traditional or even old school kind of breakdance moves, right? Uh But I'm curious about how that's still living in my body and how that could be more mined and acknowledged through my movement practice. So, So I'm curious about that and how do you go through that process in terms of performing and bringing that out. In, in my teaching practice, I, I feel like I'm at this juncture, juncture of thinking about how the Feldenkrais work and improvisational practices can come together in, mm-hmm. in kind of this workshop structure that I've been kind of referring to as unmapping hmm. and how to start with the somatic practice how to go into kind of more improvisational practices as a way to kind of both recognize our habitual ways of moving, how mm-hmm. to kind of find those other pathways or other options, and then how to integrate those things. Mm. But just the word unmapping has that sense of unlearning the things we've <laughs> Un- uncharting the things we've learned. Yeah, but... I mean, that there's also that that saying, you know, like the 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 map is not the territory. Mm-hmm. You know, or don't mm-hmm. mistake the map for the territory. Yeah, so both those things, how to how to kind of explore the terrain more fully. Yeah, and the terrain of the body, this this topography of yeah. the the body that's constantly changing. And I, I'm interested too when you say that what lives at the the break dancing living in your body as a young as a young person that kind of athleticism and just how that also changes as the body ages also yeah. or how that changes the movement changes the relationship to the movement I wonder if you could say a bit more about that and yeah no i think that's that's really important you know being being the age i am i'm 50 years old and mm-hmm. that's obviously really different than a 18 year old body and yet it's like, how do I keep finding those kind of base connections? And I may not be able to do some of the things that I was, that I could do at 18, but there's actually mm-hmm. many more things I can do now that I couldn't do then, right? Yes, exactly. Yes. So kind of finding that, those kind of relationships, as well as like not giving up on the more athletic things. 
Not that I'm going to be able to do all of them. And it's, you know, as time goes by, I'll probably have to set more of those things aside, but also stay present in that kind of athleticism that I've enjoyed and finding out what that means for right now. Yes. You know, about a year, a little over, almost a year and a half ago, I started kind of becoming a, I wouldn't say avid, but regular rock climber. Uh I go to the rock climbing gym about twice, two or three times a week actually. Mm -hmm. And finding that kind of physicality and that kind of that athleticism that's required when you're hanging on the side of a wall. (laughs) Um, Present moment. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, it is. is. You know, it's really interesting because I was at the gym, I was at the rock climbing gym this morning and they play music, which in general, I wish they didn't, but they do. And that's the way it is. But Mm -hmm. sometimes the staff there picks like the worst music, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and this morning, and it wasn't even that it was bad music, but it's like not the music I want right now. And it's not super loud, but it's just loud enough that I'm like, it enters your, oh my gosh. Yes. Feel. I can't. Uh-huh. It's, it's hard to kind of stay in that present moment. Cause you, yeah. as, of course, as you climb the wall, you get closer and closer to the speakers. Um, (laughs) it gets louder and louder the higher you get so that's a really interesting practice as well right like here's like the environmental this is kind of not not a big deal but environment coming into your practice what you're doing right now and how do you kind of negotiate that right Um, right and sound sound and music and yeah how much of an environment that is and I'd love to hear a little bit about how you I know you've done duets with musicians yep. who are also moving, and uh, I was struck by some of the just the sound world in your performance pieces and and the music and how how important that is to you and how much you work with it or against it. You know, I, I had a really fortunate relationship, really opportunity to work with Jonathan Mattis in D.C. for many many years. And he composed music for many of my pieces, and then we performed a lot together. He plays kind of he plays guitar. He does a lot of kind of manipulations with the guitar in different ways, and loops it and and plays it with different kinds of kind of extended techniques. And we we developed a great relationship working together. And we actually ended up doing this duet piece where we kind of switched roles. I we spent time in the studio, and I taught him movement stuff and then he taught me how to play the guitar in certain ways and we'd switch oh, really? roles and it was really fun to kind of kind of mess that up yeah. and so the relationship I mean obviously when I'm improvising if I have the opportunity to be with a live musician and we're in communication that is an ideal situation but there's also like thinking about my relationship to the music to the or the sound that's happening you know I do this one exercise with my students where I'll put on a piece of music and I just say, you have to dance with this music as fully as possible. Like Mm. get the tempo, get the quality, get the feeling, just like totally embody this music as fully as you can. Mm -hmm. So, and we we do that and I do that with a, you know, play, I don't know, a minute, minute and a half of a song. And then I switch songs and we do that for a number of songs. And then we do the same thing. We play, I play some other pieces of music and I say, now this time I want you to do the exact opposite of what the music feels like. Mm-hmm. like shift the tempo, shift the quality, sh- as much as you can, just do the opposite. Mm-hmm. And then the third time we go through the process, we talk about that those two things are a continuum. Mm-hmm. And you can go from being right in the pocket with the music to being 
completely juxtaposing the music. And those are like, you know, one in 10. And then you have that whole space in between to play with. Yes. And the metaphor I often give is like you're surfing the music. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're going with the music. Sometimes you're cutting back across the music. You know, sometimes you just totally let go of the music. Sometimes you refined it. It's like, it's this ongoing relationship with the music that is not dictatorial, mm -hmm. especially when you're using recorded music, right? When you put mm -hmm. out a piece of recorded music, it's like, that's what it is. And it can't respond to you in any way. So you need to create a relationship that is complex and layered with that music because the music can't do anything right now. That's uh, really beautiful and a beautiful metaphor for the improviser or for any conversation that you're having with anyone that you, you're really listening. You have to hear the music. You have to really listen to it yeah. to know whether you're moving with it or against it. Either yeah. way, you're accepting it yeah. and right. responding. Right. And you're not, you're, yeah, you're not ignoring it. Yes. Right. Exactly. I've certainly, I mean, we've all seen probably, if you've seen any improv performance, you've seen people, uh, at least dance improvisation, you've seen people who you're not quite sure what they're doing with the music because they're basically just ignoring it. <laughs> right. You lose the relational, the, yeah. deep, the complex, deep relationship to it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. I know we only have a few minutes yeah. left. <laughs> oh, it goes so fast. And it feels like we're just getting started. I know, I know. Well, maybe... Maybe, maybe we're going to have to have a third and fourth conversation. <laughs> I don't know. Is, is there anything else you want to speak to that you're currently really engaged with? There's the, the rock climbing, which is just such a... Actually, I just want to go back to... I saw some of the uh, video of you working with a musician, and it seems like there's so many ways that you break boundaries and blur those distinctions of what's sort of an art form and demystifying it, but also reinvesting it with its mystery. Hmm. And I, I just really appreciate that in all of your work with the environment, with um, working in nature, working with other, with other systems that you're also, um, yeah, breaking the boundaries between them and finding different ways to relate. Is there any other realm in which you're doing that, which we haven't hit on in this last few minutes? The thing that pops in my mind is this spring here at the university, I choreographed or I created, I directed, I facilitated uh, a piece on students. And, mm -hmm. and it, was, it was basically a structured improvisation. There was one section where there was set, set movement material, but the rest of it was all like a series of structures of mm -hmm. improv. And I was really struck watching them go through this process you know, every rehearsal, it was like we were just improvising and improvising and improvising and improvising. And I would spend time at the beginning of rehearsals, not working on the material for the performance, but just, you know, having them work on themselves. Yeah. And, and find yeah. out more what they're doing. And we'd go through different processes and, and watching them move from a place of hesitation to a uh -huh. place of ownership within this process was one of the most satisfying kind of experiences I've had recently. Mm. And, and I think there's something, I mean, it, it happens all the time in more choreographed work, mm -hmm. but, but it's like they be, they were becoming more and more themselves within <laughs> the work because that's, there was, there was a lot of room in the work for seeing them. Mm, that's gorgeous. And I'll, I'll just, I'll just share one of our core practices we did throughout the semester 
um, and maybe this is the thing we can we can end on, is a practice mm-hmm. that we called Yes, Go More. Mm-hmm. And a group of students would be in a circle and then there'd be one student in the middle and the mm-hmm. score for them in the middle was just to move however you want to move. Mm-hmm. And really super open, just like whatever feels good to you right now today, that's how I want you to move. Mm-hmm. Then the, the students around the edge, when they saw something they responded to, they would say yes. Huh. And if they saw like some someone was getting kind of going, getting into something, they'd be like, go, 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 go. Um, or they would say more, 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 more. You know, uh-huh. I remember one point when someone was like starting to go into like an arch, like a backbend type thing. And their group was just like, more, more, more. And she went into this arch that I don't think she's ever done an arch like that in her life. You know, wow. it was just like physically so luxurious and gorgeous. And, and so that became like this core practice of saying yes, saying go, mm-hmm. saying more within the group. And I think that was super empowering for them. It sounds really empowering, the witness and the vocal witness. Yeah, and kind of that, like, coaching, but in a way that was about love and about mm. building community. Mm. And reveals the witness's pleasure yes. also. Yes, So that everybody is revealed in yeah. there. Yep, that's oh. right. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I'm so, I think that is a yes, go more way to end. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great cool thank you yeah thank you so much for doing this it's it's fun to have you know as i said the tables turned and kind of go in a different role and i do mean that i i feel like this is we're just starting a conversation oh i'm so i'm so glad because i there's so many more questions i have yeah and and i for you as well (laughs) okay all right well thank you and have a great rest of your day Thank you, Daniel. Have a beautiful, have a beautiful day. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Okay. Bye. Take care. Again, thanks for listening to this conversation with me and Cass. And thanks for listening to all the conversations I've had in the Actriad podcast. I'm planning on doing another season next year, but it won't be until the second half of the year as I have a lot of other projects that is going to take up all of my time. You can check out what I'm doing out in the world at DanielBurkholder.com, my new and shiny website. And also, as I'm thinking ahead to the new season next year, if you know of anybody who might be interesting for me to interview, please send me their name and contact information. You can just drop me a note at daniel at danielburkholder.com, and I'll, I'll add them to the list. So have a wonderful new year, and until then, take care. <laughs>